We're going to continue our series on Isaiah. I understand you've been in that for a few weeks. I know you had a break last week with Ephesians, but we're going to be back in the book of Isaiah. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles or a Bible app to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, please. I'll read that text for us, and then we'll pray and have a look at the word together. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Hear these words of the prophet. But there will be no gloom for who who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you and praise you that in your great love for us, you hold us fast. Some of us now feel like we are walking in the darkness. Perhaps some of us sense we are in the valley of the shadow of death. There is gloom, there is disappointment, there is disillusionment. We thank you for these words that remind us that you have plans and purposes and promises that shape our present and give us hope for the future. Remind us, we pray, that you command our destiny from the womb to the tomb. And so we come to you now and ask that you, through your life-giving transformational word, would bring to us life and light and immortality through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may notice that on the back of all U.S. currency, there is a line that says, in God we trust. In July 1955, Congress passed a bill that said all currency, whether coins or paper money, has in God we trust on the past, on the back of those bills or those coins. In God we trust. Do we? Fascinates me that that's on the back of currency, and especially in times like now where we face a financial crisis, 
a recession like we haven't had in, what, 40 years since the late 70s and 80s. We had the crisis in 2008, the crisis in 1920s. And every time that happens, there's a national panic. And we find ourselves asking in one form or another, in whom or in what do we trust? And we find ourselves in conversation saying things like, if we just had the right president, if we just could find the right economic policies, if we could just have a better social policy, everything would be okay. But the reality is, whatever crisis we face in life, we always have a choice. We can trust in human policies or in divine promises. Chapter 7, verse 9 has a verse that says this, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. These are God's word to King Ahaz. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Do you trust in divine promises or human policies? That verse is a controlling verse in some ways for the whole book of Isaiah up to chapter 39. In whom do you trust? Where will you find your firmness? What is your rock? So now to Isaiah, where are we in the story? Just a reminder by way of broader context, chapter one, verse one, dates Isaiah's prophecy. It spanned 110 years and four kings. And he began his service in about 740 BC. And the first five chapters of the book are like a spiritual diagnosis, if you will. God, through the prophet Isaiah, shows where God's people are at spiritually. And in summary, he says they are rebels because they are spiritually corrupt, they are socially corrupt, and they're nationally corrupt corrupt. In chapter 1 verses 5 to 6, God says they are spiritually sick from head to toe. And so Isaiah, you might say, is a deathbed prophet. Israel, God's people, are on the deathbed and he's next to them with a message from God of judgment and of mercy. And so with this spiritual diagnosis that God gives through Isaiah in the first five chapters, we have this question. How will spiritual renewal come about for God's people when they're so corrupt and so far from God and so lost? Well, the answer, in a sense, comes with Isaiah's call and commission in chapter 6. You may remember from chapter 6 a few weeks ago that the path for Isaiah was confession of sin. He re recognized before God that he had unclean lips and he was among an unclean people. Then came the cleansing from God through the seraph and the hot coal that touched his tongue. And then the third part of that was a commission. And Isaiah's path must be Israel's path. A call to confession, a need for and a coming to for cleansing and a commission to be light to the world. 
And so now as we come to chapter 9, the immediate context is, of course, King Ahaz. And King Ahaz reigned in the shadow of the Assyrian Empire. And in chapter 7, verse 11, God asked him to turn to him and to trust in him. That was a pivotal moment for King Ahaz and the people of Israel. Turn to God and trust in him. And that's where God says, if you do not have faith, you will not be firm at all. And Ahaz's choice, choice was to trust in human policies, not in God's promises. And so God says, very well then, the Assyrians will invade you, and there are very hard days coming that will be filled with darkness. And so in chapter 8, at the end, God says, there will be no dawn for God's people. It's terribly bleak, isn't it? No dawn, says God, only distress and darkness. And so that's the story so far as we come to Isaiah chapter 9. And so we have to ask as we look at chapter 9, two questions. The first one is this. What function does chapter 9 serve in the Bible? And what function does this serve for us today? Why should we read it? And there's three brief reasons. And the first is this. This call is a call that we need to hear again and again and again. When God repeats themes in the Bible, it's because we need to hear it again and again and again. And the three things he wants us to hear here is there's a call to trust in God. To wait for him and to hope in him. Secondly, this book is about the promise of the conquering servant King Jesus who comes as the light of the world into our darkness. And the third reason why we want to array Isaiah is because at his ascendant very well, it is the gospel of the Old Testament. So right before passage, we have chapters 8, verses 20 to 22. And God says, the testimony is this, they are hungry, they will be enraged, they'll speak contemptuously against their king and their God, they'll turn their faces upward, then they'll look to the earth, human policies, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's as bad as it can get. And then comes chapter 9. But. I don't know about you, but when I see the word but in the Bible, I get very excited. <laughs> it's not a word we get excited about in everyday English. It's just a word we don't think about. But whenever there's a but in the Bible, it means there's what's called a contrasting conjunction. Something marvelous is about to happen. You think about Romans 1 and 2. God talks about how we're all guilty of sin and we're against the wall. And he says, but a righteousness from God has been revealed through Jesus Christ. It means something magnificent and marvelous and God ordained is about to happen. And that's exactly what happens here because our God is the God of contrasting conjunctions. Verse one, but there will be no more gloom for who her was in anguish. It's extraordinary, isn't it? He just talked about gloom, thick darkness, distress and anguish, and now in the very next time, but. There will be no gloom for who or who 
past tense, was in anguish. It's an extraordinary reversal. It's a move from gloom to glory. And this work of God transforming and bringing light where there's darkness, this is nothing new. This is exactly what God did in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. When the Spirit of God hovered over the darkness in the deep and God met the deep in the darkness with his life-giving transformational word and he brought what? Light. And so as Israel faced the darkness of the impending Assyrian invasion because of their lack of faith and their king's lack of faith, we've got this pivotal key question. How would they move from gloom to glory? And the answer is this, through trusting God's great promises. That's how they and that's how we will move from gloom to glory through trusting in God and his great promises. My friends, when you trust in God and his promises, he will bring you shape and security to your present and he'll give you a hope for the future no matter what you're facing. That's the call. So what are these promises? The first one is this, verses 1 and 2. God promises light for darkness. Verse 1 is couched in certainty. He says, there will be no gloom for who who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought it in contempt, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. Do you see that? No more gloom, but glory. And so when we experience darkness in our lives, when our dreams are shattered, where life doesn't work out the way we had hoped it would or planned it would, we are faced with the choice. Like Israel in chapter 8, verse 22, we can look to the earth. We can look for hopes and trusts in policies and figuring our way out. And then we can sink down in spirit and despair and conclude, I guess God doesn't care for me after all. Or he's forgotten us. Or we can look to God and listen to his promises and acknowledge and be real about the fact there is despair in our lives. There is still darkness. There is still disappointment. There is still disillusionment. But remembering that those things aren't the only reality. That's not all there is. Because God is prime reality. He's the ultimate reality. And his word and his promises shape reality. This in front of us is not all that there is. So where do you look? In whom or what do you trust? The present isn't all there is to life. God is telling these people who are about to be cast in darkness, dawn will eventually rise later. 
And so what Isaiah is showing us in verse one is this. God controls the future with his great and precious promises. God controls the future with his great and precious promises. And he promises here that light is coming. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy will come in the morning. And so as God's people then and now face darkness, Isaiah is calling us to faith, to trust. What does he mean by faith? Faith is a confession of our inadequacy. Faith is turning to God and saying, I can't do it. I can't get life going the way I want to. Every time I make plans, they often don't come about the way I had planned. I'm inadequate. I'm struggling in the darkness, Lord. I'm struggling with the darkness, Lord. And so I'm looking to you and I'm asking you for help and I'm trusting you that you have the future in hand. And that same faith that acknowledges the reality of darkness and inadequacy is the same faith that acknowledges and believes that light is coming. That despite present appearances, God is able because he's bigger than the odds and because he has plans and purposes in the darkness. It's not for nothing because remember, God is writing the story of our lives. God is writing the story of the world and he controls it all through his great and precious promises. The second promise is in verses three to five and it's this. God promises peace for turmoil. Boy, do I need to hear that. <laughs> Been a lot of turmoil in my life over the last number of years. Continues and God promises Peace. Look at verse 3. You've multiplied the nation. They're about to become a remnant. They're about to be invaded. They're about to be taken into captivity, and many will fall away, but not all of them. They're going to become a remnant, and yet Isaiah says, You have multiplied the nation. Again, that's about a promise. It's about God fulfilling his promise to Abraham that he would bless the nations, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, making a people for himself that he would bless. Verse 4 says, the yoke of the burden will be broken. There will eventually be deliverance and redemption. Verse 5 says the warfare garments, garments will be burned. It's the fruits of victory. That's what you do when the war is over. You burn up all that stuff. There will be deliverance. I want to pause and consider for a moment, again, who this is written to. This is written to God's people who faced darkness and despair as the Assyrians are about to invade them and bring them into captivity. That's who's hearing these words 
that you're going to burn the garments. That the yoke and burden of the Assyrian king will eventually be broken. That the remnant will become a nation again. That there will be light in the darkness. Have you noticed that these verses are written in the past tense? And yet they haven't happened yet. How is that possible? It's possible because God has already written the future. And so Isaiah can write in the past tense as if these things have already happened. It's like Isaiah casts himself forward in time and then he looks back on the mighty acts of God, which are all a fulfillment of all the promises he's making now. Are you with me? For Isaiah, it's certain. And that's what faith is. It's not certainty in ourselves. It's not certainty in human policies. It's certainty in God and his promises that what he says will always come to pass. And that's exactly why Isaiah can write these verses right after the fact that they will be cast into thick darkness because of their sinful disobedience. Not only is it in the past tense, notice how all of the activity is on God's side. You will bring the light. You have multiplied the nation. You will bring us joy. You will bring us relief from the burden of the oppressor. And so because Isaiah knows that God is going to do it, these verses don't express a prediction. They express a fact. And these verses are brimming with confidence in God. And yet, verse 1 says, in the latter time, they are not there yet. And brothers and sisters, we are not there yet. Their world was still filled with darkness. And so often we experience darkness in our world and in our lives and in our hearts. And so the question is, how will these promises of light for darkness and peace for turmoil come to pass? It's all based on the third and best promise of all in verses six to seven. God promises a son. It's this son. It's this child who will be born. It's this Jesus who makes it all possible. It's through the son that we enter this great salvation. <laughs> Chapter 6, a child is born. It speaks of the incarnation and birth of Jesus Christ, the fully divine becoming the fully human. He's called the son. He's, of course, the son of David and the son of God. And the first thing it says is, verse 6, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Jesus will carry the burden. 
He takes the burden from us. He takes the yoke of the oppressor from us. And it's why this Jesus can say, come to me, all who were weary and heavy laden, and I'll refresh you. It's this son who says, take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus lightens the load and he carries it for us. And this son is given titles that are divine and majestic and could be given to no one but him. He's wonderful counselor. Means Jesus is the word of God and the wisdom of God. He is qualified to rule and teach like no other. He is mighty God that points to his person and his power. Jesus is the warrior who comes and delivers his people and secures the victory forever. He's called everlasting father because Jesus and the father are one. And it points to his loving concern and care for us as his beloved family. And he's called the Prince of Peace. And you know how Jesus brought us that peace. Through his sin-bearing death on the cross. Which brought us peace with the Father, peace with others, and peace within. That sin-bearing death on the cross reconciled us to God the Father and makes reconciliation with one another and ourselves possible. And Paul says this peace is everlasting and it surpasses all understanding. And Isaiah wanted Israel to know and he wants you, the church, to know that this is only possible through the Son. The way in is the way on. All that will result from the coming of Jesus is secured at once in these verses. And there will be no end, it says, from this time forth and forevermore. His reign of peace is permanent. That's a rock to stand on, isn't it? And this is why Simeon, when he looked at baby Jesus in the temple, could say, Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation. And Simeon said that 33 years before Easter weekend. When Jesus comes, everything is secured forever. And so these verses are a call to trust in God. This son is the one who came into our world and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. It's this son who gave his life in our broken world and said, behold, I am making all things new. It's this son who said, 
don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, my peace I give to you. The darkness in verse 1 started in Zebulun and Naphtali. And if you read Matthew 4, you'll see that that is exactly where the light of the world began his ministry. And if all of this isn't wonderful enough, look at the last line. I love it in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zeal means a fervent love and an intense desire and the pursuit of an objective. Again, zeal means a fervent love and an intense desire and the pursuit of an objective. And so Isaiah is saying to Israel and he's saying to us, God is zealous to do this. God intensely desires to bring us light and peace. God is fervent in his love for us and he's intense in his desire to pursue us, to bring us to him and to give us the peace that only he can give. But you can't have that without faith. And it's why, again, chapter 7, verse 9 is so critical. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So what is the bridge from darkness to light? What is the bridge from turmoil to peace? What is the bridge from bondage to freedom? It's faith in God and his promises. And why is that the key? Because whether you see the issues of our day as political or social, what Isaiah is showing you and me is that the underlying issue is really a spiritual one. In who or what do you trust? You see, if you don't believe in God, the opposite isn't believing in nothing. The opposite of believing God is believing in everything. Well, I just need a better political society to live in. Everything will be fine. We just need better social policies and everything will be fine. We need better economic policies and, and life will be okay. We just need to get healthcare under control, the military under control, and everything will be okay. And then what happens? You're bouncing all over the place from one thing to the next. And of course you'll have no security. Because you believe everything. We just need the next thing and we're going to be okay. And yet life teaches us again and again and again. We can't get hold of the world. It's crooked. But if you have faith, says God, you will stand firm. All of these promises were in the future for God's people then. But for us, nearly 3,000 years later, they've all been fulfilled. Assyria, this great threat here, has been assigned to the scrap heap of history. And God gave us his son 2,000 years ago. And yet, there is still darkness, isn't there? 
He has come, but all has not been fulfilled in its fullness yet. And so as we face darkness in our world, darkness in our lives, darkness in our hearts, what's the call? One, to look back and take heart. Look back and see how God has always come through and by his grace we stand and take heart from that. Secondly, we can see the present events as fulfilling the purposes and plans of God rather than random chaotic events that shake us. Thirdly, we can look to the future when Jesus will return and we with all of God's people experience the fullness of his promises. And fourthly, we can renounce trusting in human policies or our own efforts and trust in God and his promises. My brothers and sisters, faith is what enables us to see that the light is coming. Faith enables us to see there will be a dawn. And it's faith that enables us to be sustained in the present and have a firm hope no matter what we're facing. And this, loved ones, is how we will move from gloom to glory. That is what it means to be firm in faith, trusting in God and his promises. And if you do, you will be firm. And so, in who do we trust? Amen.